The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, the week on the right hook here at Newstalk is coming to an end with me, George Hook, and we've got some of the outstanding items of today's show that you can listen to just in case you miss them. Interesting story in the Irish Times today. Uh, Dempsey criticises €6 million Euro College Green Plaza project. The Dempsey in question, of course, is the uh, the former Transport Minister, Noel Dempsey, who now chairs the Temple Bar Company. And he joins us on the line now. G- good afternoon, Noel. Thank you very much. Uh, what What is... What's your beef with this, with Dublin City Council and their handling of this pedestrian and cycle plaza at College Green just in, in front of Trinity College? Well, from the company's point of view, we, we welcome the, the proposed development, but the beef we have is uh, with exactly how they're handling it. They called for, uh, had a public consultation, called for submissions. We made a detailed submission in relation to it. We feel that an EIA should be, a screening process should be put in place, that an environmental impact assessment screening process should be put in place. Within days of the submission being being put in and the closing date for submissions, uh, they advertise for consultants to uh, plan the plaza. I would have thought that anybody that made a submission would have had the courtesy of a response before they took the next step. And that's really the beef rather than anything to do with the plaza itself. Just to play devil's advocate, would would Dublin City's argument presumably would be, well, of course we are going to take on board those submissions in the coming weeks and months, but at the moment all we're doing is, is putting out an invitation to tender. That process will obviously take some time and it will allow us time to go through these submissions and then inform whoever wins. Uh, well, that, that's, that sounds very reasonable if people that made submissions were actually told that in advance or told it subsequently. Um, it, it just seemed like uh, indecent haste, if you like, uh, that you would start talking in terms of putting out the consultants for, for this part of it. Um, obviously, if... Dublin City Council take on board what we're saying about the implications of this uh, plaza, the rerouting of buses, the rerouting of uh, cars and so on. If all of that is taken into account, if they intend to take that into account, then we're satisfied that there's a proper process in place. But if they're just going to design a plaza, assume that everything... uh, to do with traffic and buses going up Parliament Street, up to 1,500 buses a day going up and down Parliament Street, that that's going to be all right, um, then I would have serious concerns. Yeah, Parliament Street, for, for people who aren't from Dublin, they'll, they'll, they'll know the street. It's the street coming off Capel Street Bridge that, that runs right down to, to, to City Hall. Your concern is in, in, in Temple, Bar, uh, Temple Bar Company is there's just too many buses that are going to be diverted down that It's going to become a two-way route, basically, just for buses. Just for buses. That's our concern. We, we don't know whether the concern is justified because we haven't seen any traffic management plan as a result of uh, what's going to be put at College Green. We, we don't know. We are guessing to an extent. And uh, I feel, 
and certainly as a public representative, as somebody that would have uh, favoured a lot more cycling, uh, put a cycling policy in place, uh, favoured a lot of the work that was being done around Dublin City. If you're going to do something as major as this, and it is major, and it can be, uh, it could be wonderful for the city, you need to engage with your citizens. You need to engage with your businesses. You, you need to engage with people generally. Uh, keep them fully informed. Respond to the concerns they have, and assure them that all of the difficulties that um, that may arise as a result of shutting off what is a major artery through the city, that all of those have been carefully thought out and that mitigating measures have been put in place to make sure that we don't cause a, a major problem elsewhere. Parliament Street, it's a beautiful street. The vista across the bridge up to City Hall is just magnificent. It's, uh, I think, probably... People of my generation remember John F. Kennedy traveling up that uh, particular direction, but um, it's a beautiful street, and all we'll see on that, if our reckoning is right, is a wall of buses in both directions for practically every minute of every day, and that just isn't acceptable. Broadly speaking, are are you and you personally and indeed the Temple Bar Company, are you in favour of this idea of a uh, a plaza in front of Trinity College, which will effectively just be my understanding? I, I think I'm right in saying this. It'll effectively just be be pedestrianised and and Lewis, and that's it. Effectively, that's, that's our understanding of it as well. And we are as a company and and personally, I'd be very much in favour of it. I think it 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 will bring Dublin into line with so many fine cities across Europe uh, where you have uh, pedestrians have some sway. Um, It will, uh, I think, be enormously helpful from a tourist point of view. It will link the Grafton Street shopping area right down into O'Connell Street. It will obviously increase the footfall, we think, for Temple Bar and all the businesses that are in there. So there's a lot of pluses with this plan uh, as far as we'd be concerned. There are concerns, obviously some businesses, uh, car parks and so on within the Temple Bar area have concerns about whether they're going to lose business um, uh, and other, uh, others have concerns about whether it's going to, Temple Bar will become a rat run for a lot of taxis and a lot of other car traffic uh, trying to avoid College Green. So. The general thing I would say from our members is, yes, this sounds very, very positive. Let's get it right. Uh, Let's know all the facts. And if there are difficulties that are going to arise, let's see how we can mitigate them. And the only way to do that is a screening process for an EIA. Get that in. Make it part of all of the planning process in relation to uh, the Temple Bar Plaza. We understand, as it is at the moment, that there will be no screening, that's a part eight process where the councillors will make the decision in relation to this, in relation to the plaza itself, will take place or has taken place. And all of the potential, I'd have to say, a potential chaos of traffic in other areas of the city will not be dealt with. And it's, again, we, we don't think that that's acceptable. 
Is there an argument? I mean, I'm look, instinctively, I'm very much in favour of this idea of the plaza in front of Trinity College. And I think you're right when you say it brings us, uh, in key, it's certainly in keeping, if I can put it that way, yeah. with what other European cities, continental European cities are doing. In fact, they were doing it 10, 20 years ago. But is there an argument that says we are such a car-dominated city in Dublin that you literally can't do this without having a hugely deleterious knock-on effect all across the city, that it just might be too ambitious for a city that is so car-dependent? I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the figures for the number of cyclists using uh, the city, I mean, I, I know that I got into difficulty as Minister for Transport when I uh, introduced the cycling policy for the city. We were told that it was going to... Uh, you know, that it was going to be chaos, that um, there was going to be more accidents and so on. But once it was carefully planned out and is still being laid out, I think Dublin City Council have done a wonderful job in that. There have been huge changes to traffic flows in the city um, over the last 10, 15 years. This is uh, another example of or the, ne- the next phase of it, if you like. So properly handled with proper consultation and that, it just will mitigate the, the worst effects of this. Uh, it'll, it'll assure people that you've thought about everything uh, and, the, and the negative effects that it might have as well indeed as the positive ones. So it's, it's it, to an extent, the frustration is the unseemly haste and the lack of, of consultation or information as to what exactly is going to take uh, happen to traffic. I mean, I sat in an interview with um, uh, Kieran Cuff, and I mentioned the thing about 1,500 buses uh, going up and down Parliament Street. He seemed genuinely to be taken by surprise and uh, to, to kind of say, well, if that is going to happen, then it's certainly something we'll have to have a look at. Now, he is chairman of the Transportation Committee. Uh, he, at least should be aware of the potential uh, downsides in this and should be trying to ensure that um, it doesn't, that they don't come to pass and that citizens are reassured. But I can tell you from the membership that we have in Parliament Street, they are absolutely terrified as to what's going to happen there. They see their whole streets um, being transformed into just, as I say, one giant bus depot. Well, which but effectively Westmoreland Street is at the moment, at when the you moment, think about yes. it. Yes, uh, but this, this because you're moving, uh, the, I, I think that there aren't as many buses going through Westmoreland Street now as there will be going through um, Parliament Street. Uh, I mean, the figure, as I say, is 15, 1,600. Uh, I just, that's wall-to-wall buses as far as I'm concerned. And it's just, it, it isn't acceptable from an environmental point of view, from a traffic point of view, uh, from a, a residence point of view. It's just, it's just not on. Okay, let us know your views on this, listeners. 53106 at a cost of 30 cents. And I think, to be fair, it's not just, it, this affects people who, you know, outside Dublin as well. It is the capital city and it's an area that many people visiting the city uh, use regularly. Uh, but anyway, uh, Noel Dempsey, uh, chairman of uh, Temple Bar Company and, of course, former Transport Minister, thanks indeed for joining us. Thank you, Shane. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie 
Now, I know everyone has been following the story of the seven-year-old boy left by his parents in a Japanese forest. And they left for a couple of moments and they came back. Uh, they were trying to punish him and teach him a lesson. When they came back, he was gone and feared that everybody, I suppose we all feared the worst. But miraculously, happily, today or yesterday, he was actually found safe and well. But it got us thinking about what kind of strategies a parent should use to deal with misbehaviour. Uh, to, to discuss this, we're joined by Mark Harold, clinical psychologist and author of Parenting and Privilege, and Privilege even, Raising Your Child in an Affluent Society. Uh, Mark, you're very welcome to the programme. Good to be here, Shane. It's a big issue for parents, isn't it? Because, you know, even when I was a kid, there was that kind of, there was a slight kind of, you, you know, your dad had that kind of authority. You didn't mess with him. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of children would have, you know, got a, a slap or a, you know, a, a whatever from their, from their parents. And that type of parenting obviously doesn't exist anymore. Um, it does raise challenges for, kid, for parents nowadays and how you discipline your kids. Yes, I, I'd agree. I, I think the parenting of sort of our generation probably was a little bit more authoritarian and in some cases a lot more authoritarian. Uh, we're in a different era now. I mean, it's 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 illegal anyway to say slap yeah. your child. It's probably illegal to drive off on your child uh, as well. Funny enough, talking to a lot of parents, a number of them said, oh, I can understand that they, you know, what would what happened there. But most of us wouldn't actually do it. Uh, it's probably not the best of an idea. No, uh, an I mean, idea. look, I, I suppose, though, to be fair, uh, I mean, there's, you know, as parents, you, you look back and say, you know, if I had that over again, I wouldn't have done that. You do exactly. things under stress. Yeah. And well, look, it was, it was yeah. a stupid thing to they did, but yeah. they obviously they they didn't think for one second he he was going to come to any harm when they did it. Sure. Look, I was a much more accomplished parenting expert when I didn't have children. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have two uh, now, and so this is a, a rarity. It's all speaking very well in public theory, about what, what you're meant to do. Yeah. So none of us are perfect. Okay, and I absolutely agree with you. You know, when you're stressed and when you have sort of kids, you know, um, you're not going to be perfect. So I think parents shouldn't be too hard on themselves. And in fact, we learn from our mistakes, just like those parents. They're not going to be leaving their child behind them, albeit, you know, that that, it, that was an extreme case and obviously reported in the newspapers. Mm. But lots of parents have reported and friends of mine have reported where their children do all of a sudden in a split second go missing and they get the fright of their lives. And uh, eventually, you know, the, thankfully, most of the time, in fact, all of the time, the children are eventually found. So look, these things happen. But I think you were saying, like, you know, what's different about now? I mean, certainly since things like, you know, slapping a child is illegal, which I totally agree with because I don't think it achieves anything. I agree with you. I um, agree with you. Yeah. But I think the, the the approach to parenting that we need now is a more kind of a, a preventative approach uh, to, to managing behaviour. For instance, if you're going on an outing, letting children know where you're going, what to expect. Because very often we might be, you know, again, when we're stressed, just get in the car, we're going. Now, that's setting up for potential failure if the child doesn't know where they're actually going or if it's in the middle of their favourite TV programme. Now I know we, you know, we have to accommodate, our, our children have to accommodate just as much as we do but if a little bit of planning ahead is very effective. Another thing is that I think what we don't tend to do as, as a culture is praise our kids enough and just say, look, that I really liked when you sat quietly at the table or the way you ate your dinner was really good. Mullanoiga, basically, August Chucky Shield is the, the old Irish slogan, praise praise kids and they'll, and they'll come, basically. And the, well, the, and technically, from a sort of behavioural, psychological point of view, they're much more likely to repeat that behaviour. But more often than not, we're likely to say, 
don't do that. Like, don't pick your nose. But I mean, if you if you actually say that to a child, they're actually not learning anything from that. What the, just like this mother in the zoo, you know, don't go near the gorilla, you know, or don't go into the into the canal, you know. So what's the child going to do? What did the child? What does the child hear? Of course, it hears. You know, go into the into the enclosure. Whereas you need to hold my hand, and we're going to get a a a, a or a, a ninety nine or whatever uh, in five minutes. Might be a more constructive um, you know approach to take. Okay, good advice. Um, what about though when they are just and look, all kids do it when they're just being totally unreasonable and totally irrational. How do you get them down? I mean. Uh, if George was here, he'd be giving out about the naughty step, saying it's a pile of nonsense. And obviously, look, the, even even if it works, and I, I'm not sure it does, it's certainly beyond a certain age the naughty step doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, it, the consequence end of things, it's natural and logical consequences. For a younger child, it, it might be a step, you know, a, a little bit of quiet time, you know, short uh, amount of time. Or, you know, for an older child, it might be loss of a mobile phone or something like that. But that's not effective parent. You know, the most effective parenting is planning ahead. For instance, OK, getting good sleep. If your child has a good night's sleep, they're much less likely to be irritable. And we don't put nearly enough uh, time into that. We have an obesity ec- epidemic. Aside from the physical side of that, the sugar makes children high. You know, so they're much more likely to be misbehaved. Plenty of parents will tell you, oh, I don't give them Coke. And yes, or, or colas, not to use labels, but um, they, they fly, you know, the, that, that drink flies off the shelves, you know, so somebody's drinking it. Mm. Um, so, you know, oftentimes if you stop and actually look at, you know, what are some of the effective parenting things? Like, for instance, as well, before you head out on a, on a, a, for an activity, setting down some basic rules. Like, I want you to stay close to me. You know, uh, I, I want you to sort of participate. If you're going shopping, for instance, you know, I, I need you to pick out some apples. A small little bit of planning. See, as I say, the effective parenting, the most effective parenting is planning ahead. Okay. Um, Too many parents, says Clean and Waterford, want to be their child's best friend and expect schools to discipline on every other child except theirs. There is something to that. I mean, you're right in saying the old authoritarian ways have gone, but have we gone too far in the other extreme? Do we want to be best mates with with our children instead of... Instead of actually saying, you know, look, I'm not your friend. I'm your, I'm your dad or I'm your mother. And this is, you know what, this is what you do because I'm telling you it's the right yeah, thing to do. I absolutely agree with you. And do you know, the, that whole, that ugly Celtic tiger thing that we had where children, were, you know, got everything, pretty much everything they want. I mean, I, I remember the birthday parties. I mean, it was so ugly to see, you know, 20 gifts arriving in and, you know, kids, the expectations were all, all there. And one of the big issues with it, and I think it's still remains with that generation is that they didn't experience adversity. They didn't experience no. I mean, and if you move that along, where did this tradition of leaving Sartre students heading off to Ibiza come from? I mean, that was never an era. That was a pipe dream. Yeah. You know, the thought of even a family going to Ibiza, you know, for most people a, a generation ago. So, I, I think it's absolutely important. We learn nothing by being, say, just best mates and providing all the time. Children will learn if they do encounter some adversity and told, no, not you this And when time. they do wrong, though, I mean, you know, if you... Ha, what, what should the discipline be? I mean, is it saying you're not going to play your Xbox or you're not going to get your pocket money or you're not going to that party and your friends? It's, it's, it's hard as a parent... To stick to those, to those yeah. punishments, isn't See, it? Yeah, but they're, more, they're most effective in an otherwise positive environment. 
Right. I mean, let's face it, kids aren't bad. I mean, neither are parents either, you know. But so kids need to, if they understand that they're getting a lot of praise, you know, that they're going to be recognised for things done well, if you withdraw something then, then that's much more effective. For a short period of time, you know, so you're grounded for three weeks doesn't work. You know, so it's more, you know, you're going to have to sort of think about it now for the for mm-hmm. the next uh, five minutes. But one of those things, just again, and a preventative strategy, and I was talking to Professor Ian Roberts, now I'm a big fan of from Trinity. He's the head of psychology in Trinity. He says every child should learn some type of meditative practice and they have actually mindfulness for kids and again if a child is participating in some kind of little meditative practice something very simple and it's available out there then they're much less it's much less likely to be combative with their parents that they're much more likely to be more biddable and as I say a little bit of planning ahead and parents are going to feel more in control one other thing I'd say Shane briefly if you will Mark yeah yeah. no go ahead parents need to mind themselves because it's much better if they have a calm approach approach to adversity mm. and if they're leaving a bit of time at least say even for 15 minutes of yoga in the mornings before the kids get up something that they're going to be in a better state of mind to tackle all these yeah. notable challenges and obviously I discovered them subsequently you know, when we had our children in our 40s that uh, yeah I mean th- that it's not plain sailing it certainly isn't. Uh, I like some of the texts coming in. So, oh, for heaven's sake, do we constantly have to tell kids they're wonderful to get them to show basic manners? I don't think that's what you're saying, in fairness. No, but it's, uh, we need to be specific in telling them what they're good at and what they've done actually quite well. Yeah. Jaron Carey isn't impressed. Says, tell kids about an outing in case it's clashing with their favourite TV programme. Who's in charge? The child? Get a life and lay down the law. I don't think laying down the law, I, that's my instinct as well, Jared, but I don't think it works to, in today's world. I just don't think it does. Yeah, I mean, you to can, some degree, yeah. I mean, yeah have to be the boss. You can have fundamental rules and say we're sticking by these for sure, you know and and uh, and then as I say when it when it clashes, you know, when there is a clash of sort of interests then that's a learning experience. The child does have to learn at that point. Okay, good stuff. Uh, listen, thanks indeed for coming in to us, uh, Mark Harold, clinical psychologist, author of Parenting and Privilege Raising Your Child in an Affluent Society Thanks indeed for that. Lots of texts coming through about summer holidays, PJ in Kilkenny My summer holiday nightmare bailing and stacking thousands of bales of hay in the boiling hot hay barn Thank God, not anymore. That does sound like hard work. Anne Hunt from Sligo says, my abiding memories of three month holidays from boarding school are Bay City Rollers on radio, 77, 78 uh, being allowed to go to my first disco. 77 was a really good summer if I remember it rightly. Uh, the bog to foot turf, the stacking small squares, bales of hay in your shorts and dreaming about girls says Colin from Captain. A lot of dreaming about girls here. Uh, 1995 June heat wave, dipping a thousand sheep. We were wearing oilskins and masks. It was cat says Mac and Claire. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Lots more as well on Donald Trump's visit uh, to Ireland. And uh, we're joined now on that subject by Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at NUI, Galway political columnist with irishcentral.com and the journal.ie. Um, Larry, as ever, thanks for coming into us. I, I posed the question at the start of the programme should Enda Kenny meet with Donald Trump? And uh, text coming through saying no, he doesn't have to meet Donald Trump, it's, it's not a state visit. 
what do you think? Should does he should he meet him? I, I understand the arguments um, against uh, him him or somebody from the government meeting Trump. Uh, at the same time, first off, I don't buy that this is a private visit. He's not here as a private citizen anymore. That's a myth. He is the Republican nominee for president. Wherever he goes, it's a public visit. The second point is uh, I don't like Donald Trump at all. I've said it to you on this program and other programs before. Uh, I actually quite detest the emotions he's brought forward and the way he's run his campaign and the things he has said about women and minorities in particular. At the same time, however, the guy is very close to becoming the next president of the United States. And uh, I think it it becomes at this stage necessary that the Irish government engage with him and meet with him. Uh, and before people start saying this is a horrible thing, um, you know, we need to stand on principle and stop being lapdogs, etc. Um, the country and the government indeed does things all the time and meets with people all the time who aren't necessarily um, human rights champions or whom they with whom they have very serious differences. But the reality is um, the relationship America has uh, that Ireland has with America. Uh, it's an economic one on one hand uh, in terms of multinational corporations being based here. But at the same time, it goes a lot deeper than that and, and it's a lot broader than that. And it goes a lot bigger than one person, even one person who's as big and as brash uh, and has as big an ego as Donald Trump does. So uh, in my view, um, someone from the government should meet with Trump when he's here. Okay, uh, you you probably heard on the uh, the news headlines there that uh, some of the political parties are saying they are going to protest against the visit. I think the Greens uh, said that, and and some of the left wing groupings as well. I mean, obviously that is their right to do so. Um, I do wonder though if if Vladimir Putin was visiting here. Would would all those groups be out protesting uh, 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 against him? And a man, however odious you might think uh, Trump is, I mean, there's far more reason to protest against uh, against Putin. Absolutely, as as has there been, you know, the right, I think cause for protests at other people who've been uh, either here in this country or that the well, T-shirt, like or, the Saudi regime, who, the, the Chinese regime, exactly. for example, just to think of two. Exactly, and you know, again, I think it's it's we've reached a scary stage that Trump is so close to where he is. I mean, believe me, I I don't say this with any joy. Uh, I don't say this as somebody who's taking this lightly or who isn't troubled by the fact uh, that Donald Trump might be. Uh, the you know the next president of my home country, uh, but at the same time, uh, Ireland has to do what's best for Ireland. And yes, uh, I understand the arguments on principle. I understand all of that. I understand why people would not be happy about this. But there's there's principle and all that is very good. But there's also the real politique of the situation, uh, and I'm afraid that that means that that Donald Trump, as somebody who might be the next president, should have somebody meet him. If they don't meet him, if they make it a, a decision that this is like a, a tourist visiting uh, Ireland and they're going to keep their distance and Trump gets elected as president. I, I'm, I had a quick look at the odds before you came in. He's seven to four at the moment. Uh, Hillary Clinton is, is two to one on. Hillary Clinton is still the favorite. But I think those odds are tightening all the time. I, I think it's a 50-50 race myself looking at it. If he does become president... Would he take that as a snub if nobody if uh, if nobody turns up to meet him? Well, well, here's the great unknown. I mean, the one thing that, that Donald Trump has benefited on is that Hillary Clinton has a track record, and so people don't like her for certain things that she's done. Trump, effectively in office or in, in government, has no track record, so we don't know uh, effectively how serious he would take in any kind of snub. We don't know uh, what the uh, what the fallout from any kind of snub would be. So this is really just uh, speculation at the end of the day. 
But what I will say is this, and this is going to be an issue um, no matter who's elected president, is there is definitely a sentiment and a mood uh, in the United States that is for repatriating um, taxes and repatriating jobs that a lot of Americans would view as being unfairly overseas. Now, I've also said at the same time that I don't believe there is a real threat, no matter who is elected president, to the multinational president in Ireland. I think they're here for, for a lot of good reasons and that they're not going anywhere anytime soon. Yet at the same time, uh, remember what Trump has said. Remember all the things he said. Remember the sentiment in the United States. Again, I don't think it's in the best interests of this country to snub Donald Trump. And people can say, I know that the critics will say that uh, I'm sacrificing everything at the global, uh, the, the global economy. You lie down with dogs, you get, I'm you get down fleas. And, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not doing that. I think I'm, I'm by, by meeting with Trump, and I think Leo Varadkar, I think, actually put it quite well today when he said, I'll meet with Trump, even though I detest so much of what he said. I completely disagree with so many of the things he said. I'll meet with him. Uh, and I, I think that's the posture. It has to be, you know, when, when they when the government meets meets with them, and I do believe they will. Uh, but when they do, it's not a. It doesn't have to be a red carpet Irish dances moment like the cringeworthy thing we saw at Shannon a while ago. It was yeah. awful. Um, but it, it through diplomatic channels, and at the same time, there is nothing wrong with saying that while you meet with Trump, we robustly disagree with you on a number of different things. Some of the things you've said are troubling. There's nothing wrong with doing both. And just very finally and, and briefly, did Enda McKen- Kenny make a strategic? error in, in his comments about Trump and a lot of people would agree with what he said but he said certain comments by Trump uh, were racist and dangerous was that unwise undiplomatic use of language by well the timing the timing makes it undiplomatic and unwise and he might have or he might have gone a little bit too far but don't forget Ender was in a tricky position here because a lot of people were saying he hadn't been nearly harsh enough he hadn't condemned uh, Trump and Trump's rhetoric strongly enough so he was in a difficult position now the timing of this announcement makes it even more difficult and I just, just want to make one quick point people have been asking me today do you think Trump made this decision on foot of what Ender said and that's not no I, Donald Trump doesn't fall uh, what goes on in the all that, that closely. But if, if there is a little tweak here, if there is, and I, I think we all know Donald Trump is fond of these things, he does know that Joe Biden will be here at the very same time. And if there was any kind of little tweak, that's what it might be. Okay. Fascinating stuff. Uh, let us know your views on text 53106. Should Enda Kenny or a representative of the government, a senior, it would have to be a senior representative of government, uh, meet Donald Trump when he comes here later this month? Uh, Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at NUI Galway, political columnist with irishcentral.com and thejournal.e. As ever, thanks indeed Thank for coming you. into us. There's a new film out, Me Before You. It's caused quite a storm, uh, particularly among disability activists who are boycotting the movie. Is this movie an accurate depiction or is it just yet another Hollywood betrayal of disability? To discuss this, we're joined in the studio by a well-known uh, activist, uh, dis- disability rights activist, uh, Susie Byrne. Susie, good to see you. Good to see you, Shane. Um, this, actually, before before I ask you about the film, I think we have a clip we can play. It might just give people a little bit of a flavour. Uh, this is just a clip from me before you. Have a listen. Tell me something. About what? Anything. Well... When I was little, my mum got me a pair of glittery wellies. I wore them in bed, in the bath, all summer long. My favourite outfit was the glittery boots and my bumblebee tights. I really, really, really liked having stripy legs. So what happened to these gorgeous wellies and stripy tights? Ah, I outgrew them. And they don't make those tights anymore, not for grown women anyway. Strange, that. 
Oh, you can mock. Didn't you ever love anything that much? Yes. Yes, I did. Okay, that's uh, the, the premise of the film, Susie. Uh, Will, the guy you heard there, wealthy former playboy, becomes involved with Lou, a kind of a kooky misfit who is his carer because Will has been a, a quadriplegic since a road accident several years earlier. Mm-hmm. And look, I don't look. I don't think there's any spoiler alert here, but basically, <laughs> Will wants to take his own life. Yeah. Now you're distinctly unimpressed with this film as are many disability activists yeah and I mean I don't expect cinema to portray true life okay I am not that much of an idiot okay Um, and I mean, but I think was, what happens when Hollywood gets near disability is that goes either one of two ways. The first being inspiration porn, which is about this hero as a disabled person and their struggle to overcome things in life. And the second way they can go is tragedy. And that's what we've got with me before you. And it joins a long line of films, big blockbuster movies where the central subject is about disability and where the solution is to die. And that's what Me Before You is presenting is um, death as a solution to disability, that it's the only answer that's there. And um, and that it actually this is cinema for able bodied people. It's made, it's written by the book is written by an able bodied woman. The director is able bodied. The actors are able bodied. So this isn't about disability at all, but it's saying an awful lot about disabled people and the messages that it's giving. And that's what it's caused. The consternation, I've not seen the like of it before. I, just, I, just, I was looking amazing. at some of the tweets. I mean, there's real anger yeah. in there. Well, like the a, hashtag, you know what the hashtag for this film is? Yeah. Live boldly. Yeah, our, What's living boldly if you, you the, the guy, the our hero dies at the end of it? It's not living boldly at all. And then there's a there's a kind of a twist because he then leaves his fortune to this beautiful young woman <laughs> who's able to do all the things and live adventurous lives. And uh, so he sacrifices his disabled self yeah. for her full body self. I yeah. suppose whether or not they intended that to be the message, that is the message yeah. it's sending out. Yeah, and I mean, it's a weepy book that women primarily have been sniffing about for years and now they're all queuing up with their glasses of white wine to go and watch it in the, in the cinema or to watch it at home. Uh, and it's all able-bodied women who just think this is a, a really weepy um, romance. And actually, for a lot of us, it's, it's giving huge messages and very wrong messages to people because and it's not just this film and I think that's what has got people so angry and particularly what I've noticed in the UK because the right to die and the whole issue of the right to die has become um, I mean there was legislation tried to go through the, the House of Lords or House of Commons last year and that's where a lot of people for the last 30 years but very much in the last year the not dead yet movement have basically come about and said You can't be talking about this as an issue when you're not giving people with disabilities their full rights in society and where society itself is disabling us. And that includes in how we are represented on screen. And, you know, the director has been uh, attacked for not having somebody with a disability play the part. And she said, well, we couldn't find anywhere. And that's the excuse they all give. There's no time given to develop disabled actors Mm. to take roles. It's, it is perfectly, in fact, it is heroic for an able-bodied actor to crip up. They get Oscars for it, for, the, you know, being able to play a disabled part. And, you know, th- that's at that end of cinema. And then there's the stories that are Do told. Do you find that, does that, does that 
is that incredibly patronising? It is, and, and yeah, it is. And what's patronising as well is the fact that they're making cinema about disability rather than the doctor in the film being disabled or the teacher in the film being disabled or a journalist or another somebody. And and this is actually what superhero movies, and I am no expert in superhero, but it's a huge genre, right? Mm. And that actually gets disability right because the people are able to do something and they're on the screen, they're involved in the story without their disability being the big thing about the story. Whereas things like Me Before You, Million Dollar Baby the disabled person is the centre of the story, their disability, their difficulty with it. or Is, is the plot. Is the plot. And that is the only time we as disabled people see our lives on screen. And we never see actors with disabilities and very rarely we see actors with disabilities on screen doing ordinary things like able-bodied people are doing ordinary yeah, things. Fair point. Uh, I was reading um, some quotes from, from uh, Liz Cardi, the activist and, and actor. I mean, on the issue of, of suicide, I, I, she actually, you know, she made a lot of points I just hadn't hadn't thought of. But she said, when non-disabled people talk of suicide, they're discouraged and offered prevention. Even though it's legal, it's not seen as desirable. When a disabled person talks with those, suddenly the conversation is overtaken with words like choice and autonomy. And people are rushing to uphold these prized principles, whilst talk of prevention and mental health support are rare. Yeah, and the whole issue of mental health support and people with um, acquired and physical disabilities is something that isn't talked about. And um, I, groups of us do try and talk about it more and raise the issue because our mental health is not taken seriously. Um, the resources aren't put in to our mental health. We, they concentrate so much on keeping us alive in other areas if we're lucky enough to get the supports and services that when you actually face up or want to talk about the fact that you're depressed that you can't find resources that understand disability and the issues of disability and I'm very much are, are operating from a very medical model um, you know, so it is very hard for people with disabilities to talk about those issues and now the, the answer is when other people say oh I want to end it all we now have these campaigns saying yeah right to die and you don't see anybody else joining in campaigns about disability rights in any other issue and suddenly you have all, including you've loads of able-bodied people who are pissed people who acquire disabilities and want to, mm. um, you know, kill themselves and think that it's the right thing to do. And they're not looking at stuff in the broader picture at all. Uh, I just look at some of the, 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 the text coming through from other activists saying, I, I'm not your inspiration porn. I'm yeah. not a thing to yeah. be pitied or, or killed off to make the audience cry. We're very powerful. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of other uh, movies that... that as you say, would have centred on disability. And inside, I'm dancing. Did, yeah. did, do you have the same view on that, Phil? Well, what happened, I mean, it's a very important story at the time when it was broadcast and, and about independent living and about emerging from institutional care or overprotective families. Um, but unfortunately, in the making of that film, they hired able-bodied actors. And then for the extras parts, they went into residential settings and recruited people to take part as extras who were people with disabilities. But the main protagonists were not acted by people with disabilities. And it was, you know, again, it was a tragedy or a success, you know, where one of the the characters dies and the other person is able to live their life, you know, and move into the community. It, it, it is an important film. 
Um, but I have to say, hand on my heart, I really enjoyed it yeah, when it came yeah, out. Yeah, um, but I think there is definitely division amongst people with disabilities about the film, um, and a disappointment that we can't. They, uh, they keep uh, directors keep saying, "Oh, we look for them and we couldn't find them." Disabled actors. Mm. We need to put time and money into developing. It doesn't mean disabled people can't act. We need to put time and money into developing, nurturing and risking things on putting somebody with a disability into a role. Mm. Not just thinking, oh, I've got this movie. I'll go and get this either good up and coming or established actor. And look, it'll be great. They'll bring all the audience in because they can crip up. And of course, all these actors say, oh, we spent time getting to know people and talking to people, thinking that that exonerates them and that they're able to go and do it because of that. You know, it wouldn't be acceptable for people to um, take part in, in, uh, uh, you know, in another ethnic minority and, you know, other minorities, you know, uh, and I just think... Paying lip service. Yeah, and I know people say, oh, it's acting. It's all about being able to to convince the public about the part you're playing. But for people with disabilities, we want to see ourselves on screen. We don't just want to see people pretending to be us. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. Uh, Martin says, Les... Untouchable uh, is a French movie about disability that hits all the right notes in no way patronising. I don't know if you, if don't you, know you haven't seen that I one. Um, you were telling me that um, that woman I mentioned, Liz Carr, we were chatting before about, and you were saying that she tackled some of the actors and actresses on the red carpet yeah, about this yeah. and kind of tied them up in knots effect. Yeah, they had to be pulled away from her on the red carpet. You know, she's amazing in the... Um, She's a acts as a pathologist in that uh, Waking the Dead or oh, yeah, one of those yeah. BBC uh, pathology dramas. I know who you she know? is. Yeah, yeah. And and she's just she's there as a pathologist, you know. And and that's the thing that's really important that people see her and what she's doing. The fact a that character she's who happens to have, have a disability. Now, her, her to you know, I suppose her background and and involvement. I know her as a stand-up comic, and um, you know, before she went into acting, you know. And there are a number in the UK in particular. Particular, there are a number of actors with disabilities um, who are now breaking through into soap opera and they're not there because of their disability or into other dramas. And it's important. Um, I mean, I think Fair City had a a character recently, but it wasn't somebody who had a disability. It was somebody who was pretending to have a disability. Right. You know? um, interesting question, uh, a text from Anne-Marie in Cork. I have to say, it is something that popped into my mm. mind when you were talking. Mm. Should Daniel Day-Lewis have played Christy Brown? Yeah. Is yeah. that is that a that's that's yeah that's, legitimate question yeah, as far yeah, as you're concerned? Yeah, and he's lauded for this whole thing where he goes and lives the part for six months and doesn't talk in his own accent while he's making the yeah. movie and all the rest and how wonderful it is for the art. You know, I think that you know I, I, it was a great film. Really enjoyed it at the time. Probably my own thinking on the issue at the time wasn't as developed as it is now. But yeah, there is a big question to ask about that. Mm. Um. You you won't go and see the movie. I suppose people no. will say... Uh, yeah. About two weeks ago, I thought I would. Yeah. And then I think last week, I just went, no, life is too short. I don't need to. Because just to you put the, the, the counter argument, yeah. like, how can you judge it if you haven't seen it? Yeah. People well, I say. know enough about it now. Everything's spoiled. <laughs> There's no use going. I won't be getting any surprises going to see it. Um, I just think I value my time. Even if it was for journalistic or other exploits, I now value my time. And I won't go. And if I go to the cinema, you know, I want to go and enjoy myself and not have to overanalyze everything that's there. And I know. I, and also, I don't want to be giving my money to it. 
Now, I'm not telling other people to boycott it, right? I don't, won't go that far. But I'm asking people to think about what they see and not join in the tragedy games. Yeah, fair enough. Mm. Lots of food for uh, thought there. Uh, Susie Byrne, as ever, thanks Thanks. indeed for coming into us. Uh, The best movie I've ever seen with disabilities is an Indian movie called Barfi or Barfi. Uh, There are two people who are the heroes. I know the two main actors were not disabled, but the movie portrays disabled people as people in love, which I think is what you were uh, saying. Okay, Susie, thanks indeed for that. Back in a moment on the Friday Right Hook.